This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Answers, a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today we're going to set things up just a little bit differently. We are going to open and close with a poem, and that's because we have a poet as our guest today on the podcast. But she's an author, she's a teacher, she's a Heinemann Fellow, she does so many things. Her name is Nicole Stellan O'Donnell, and the book we're going to talk most about is You Are No Longer in Trouble, but you can find her work all over the place. We'll also be talking about her upcoming book. So let's go ahead and get started with a poem that's being read by the author herself. Parent-teacher conference. The mother and father seem concerned, but they shouldn't be. The parents who should be concerned never show up for conferences. I am not worried. I am the teacher. Look at the test scores. Look at his writing sample. He works well in groups. Do you have any questions, I ask? The sad-eyed mother says, can you tell me what my son is like? He doesn't talk to us. Yeah, I bet you can relate to that, right? And her book, You Are No Longer in Trouble, is just filled with other small moments that really a teacher only a teacher could get but it's not just a teacher book it's a memoir it's philosophical it's about family it's you'll read this book and you will just feel I can't even explain it you will just feel the whole time that you read this book I can't wait for you to hear this interview with today's guest Nicole Stellan O'Donnell I very accidentally became a teacher. I didn't major in education. Um, I, much to my mother's dismay, majored in philosophy and literature, and then got an MFA in poetry, and then realized I'm completely unemployable and um, got my teaching certificate. It's not just so jaded. During that time in grad school, I found I didn't really enjoy teaching freshman uh, comp at college. Uh, It just, it wasn't, I couldn't, I don't know, it wasn't fun. And then one summer I taught for Upward Bound and I really liked the high school students for the reason described exactly in that poem in fifth period, they are all still beautiful. Even the jaded ones are still hopeful. They think they're not hopeful and it's very tender and college students tend to actually not be hopeful. So I enjoyed that energy from high school. So after working at Upper Bound, I went back. So I was not your traditional path of being a teacher. It wasn't the plot I had laid out. I don't think I had a clear plot laid out. And so um, for me to wind up teaching high school again, which was the worst educational experience I'd ever had was so ironic and strange, even to the point of, I don't get up in the morning early. And of course, high school famously starts ridiculously and inappropriately early for the developmental level of the students. So everything about it was 
ironic to me. And um, yeah, so I wound up there and I often will say it in meetings when someone, sometimes someone will say at work or in a presentation or in a training, well, we were all the kids who liked school. And I, I just want to point it out that no, no, you know, we weren't. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have the people who didn't like school teaching, I think for what you're saying, because you learn a lot about who feels like they don't fit in a school. And they, and they find themselves with you. There's a reason that girl would sit in my room. And I'm not saying, you know, I had attracted all these students or anything like that. But um, kids need to see also that adults who didn't like high school came through high school and survived. Wow, that's, so. and that's so powerful. And it makes me think about, I know Malcolm Gladwell's overquoted, but he does have this one thing where he talks about the curse of knowledge. And he's probably taking it from somewhere else where sometimes the, real, the smartest people in a field are the worst teachers because they've forgotten what it's like to struggle to know how to do the thing. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the coin, Chris Tavani, she, I once heard her talk about something called parallel experience. It's why she tries to do the assignments alongside the students. So she can, and I think Stacy Schubitz talks about this too, where they do the assignments so they can have that parallel experience so they can remember where the struggles might be because it's been a while. I feel like in this book, you're tapping into these parallel experiences all over the place. That I hadn't really thought about it as a, but yes, I think that's a really good description of it. And one thing that um, I come to with some ease, I'm doing instructional coaching now, and I'm learning that not all adults come to this with ease, but knowing when you're planning something, be it a lesson, be it an explanation, even how to explain something, because a at some point, a, some student is going to say, I don't get what you said. And you can't just repeat the same thing harder. And then they will understand what you said. You need a different metaphor. You need a different angle. You need to be able to pick up on it, what it is in that kid that, you know, what is the thing, you know, how can you make it make sense to them, whatever it is. And um, I come to that place with ease. I think because so often I was dismayed and confused and irritated in high school. So when I go to plan something, the oppositional defiant girl who I still am is there, you know, is, is there and pointing out um, probably, probably unconsciously at this point, the other doors I have into that experience to share it with someone else. And I also am very quick to drop if I see an explanation or something, and I'm thinking explanations, but if I see something that's not working, I am very quick to drop it. I think because school didn't work for me in many ways, those that particular four years of high school did not work for me. So I'm quick to drop what I perceive as not working. Yeah, that, that's an interesting, I'll have to read more about that parallel experience, but I think it's true. I think in planning, we have to do that. It's, I'm hearing, we, I think I may have talked about this before in an earlier episode of the podcast, but I'm thinking about it again, this, the spider bite that Peter Parker experiences that leads to his superpowers. And I feel like that is a, maybe a really important component of becoming a better teacher or maybe a great teacher if that's what you aspire to be is you have, it almost, it, in almost every case I've seen, there's always a spider bite that someone experienced that's led to their specific kind of superpower. Mm -hmm. 
you know you're blowing my mind because Spidey's my favorite of all like even from childhood onward Spidey I would say Pidey Pidey when I was little apparently and um teaching one my first year teaching which was at the university when I was a TA teaching English 111 um I had a giant Spider-Man poster over my desk and I had it in every single classroom I ever taught in and I never thought of metaphorically Peter Parker very accidentally and often in a very confused way as portrayed by Tom Holland and others um, is bumbling through, you know, using his powers or doing that. So that's interesting. I love that you chose Spidey as a there. <laughs> it couldn't be more perfect, right? It is, it is perfect. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time exploring You Are No Longer in Trouble. I know it's not, I know you have a new book coming out that I'd also like to talk about as well, if you're interested. Okay. In another interview, you talked about a little bit about the process and it was fascinating fascinating to me because I don't think it mirrors what I see in most classrooms. You said, and you are no longer in trouble, prose poems and flash essays seem to fit better. It was a natural shift. I found myself letting go of line breaks as I went. So once I began submitting it, I stripped them out entirely. Like this form that is so integral to my experience as a reader, it was something that didn't happen all along. And it also sounds like your writing process was not linear. Like I wrote a rough draft, I fixed a few things. I turned it into a final copy and turned it in. No, not linear at all. And when you ask what form, are you meaning like the paragraph? Is that as being integral or, okay. The prose poem, just the general um, way you structured the book. You know, so I'm going to go, I'm going to ask, I'm going to answer the second part of it first, because I think that'll, so you might need to remind me of the first part when we get there, which is about the form. So it was not linear in any way. There was nothing linear. These poems started, and you know, there's three strands in the book. There's one strand that's about my childhood. They're written generally in second person. Um, and I think of them, as I began sorting the book, I thought of them as little Nicole. So I am talking to little Nicole. And so there are stories from my own experience as a student. Then there's another strand, which is about my father's death. And those are all a linked series with the same title, Excuses for the Principal. And then the third strand is experiences from my classroom as a high school teacher in various settings. And um, so they were not written all at once in each strand they were not written at the same time but the ones that they were not written together and they were not written in the order they're in the ones that came first were the ones about my childhood life and i was really um you know my first book came out in 2012 and suddenly you think that was great oh i don't have a second you know you just suddenly you hit the wall it's over you did it so what's next and I was feeling stuck and I started just writing little memories. And that's where um, the title poem, You Are No Longer in Trouble, that talks about Mr. Buff, who actually was my eighth grade English teacher. Um, those are the ones where, and it's, I didn't change the teacher's name. So I figured I own that memory. So hopefully they'll never read it. But um, so those are the only names I really left. Um, but Mr. Buff and all the poems from my childhood, my dad being a principal when I was little, remembering what his school was like um, came first and they were in one file. And then they sat there for a very long time, years. And then I started writing a few poems about my experience of being a teacher alongside with another series that didn't wind up in this book. And then um, 
so I had those together and I sent the manuscript in and it was accepted, but they wanted a lot of changes. The editor, Nicole Brown, I recommend everyone go out and read her books. Um, she's an amazing editor and a great poet. And she really pushed me. And so she kept saying, looking at these two sections that I kind of put together saying, what is the, she kept saying, this needs to be closer to the bone. And I would say, Nicole, and it was great because we'd email each other back and I'd be like, dear Nicole, XO Nicole. It was the best series of emails, like writing to yourself. And um, so I asked her again and again, and finally she, I couldn't get it. She said, well, maybe you need to put more Alaska in it. And I was really against that. And she said, well, tell me why you teach. And I, I sat back and I, it dawned on me, well, my dad was a principal and I wanted his approval and he had just died. So I came back, his funeral was in October. Um, and I came back and I wrote all of the excuses for the principal after the book was accepted and up until the last editing date. So it was between October and December that those got added. So it was a completely nonlinear process. So those came all at once. And in terms of the form, my first book is lineated poems. So, and my master's is in poetry. And I feel like I was starting to move further and further and further away from line breaks and um, got comfortable with it here. So yeah, that's how it worked. So do, does this, I mean, I see this kind, every writer's process is different, but there are lots of things where we interconnect or we overlap. Like your process reminds me a lot of what I've read about the Beatles songwriting process, especially with songs like Happiness is a Warm Gun, where the song didn't come together all at once. It came in pieces and the writing revealed itself to the writer over time. Does this, does your understanding of the writing process affect the way you teach and coach teachers? Oh, yes, completely. And um, I, it's interesting. Wow, I'm thinking about how you just described that stuff coming together over time. And I think deep down, and I'm gonna like declare it here and we'll see, but I think that's how I believe everything works. I don't think anything I don't think linear really functions in art, but also in human connection and teaching is so much an art of uh, fostering human connection. So I think that's true, stuff comes together in time. And it's certainly the case with all my writing. And then being a writing teacher, of course I'm gonna take the process and put that in the forefront because I almost think, and this is radical when you know we live in the standardized testing era, I think there is only process. I don't really think there's anything else. Like the book exists, yes, you can call that a product, but am I still editing lines here and there sometimes? You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, proce it's a process. And a lot of that comes out of, um, I went to grad school and Peggy Shoemaker, who's an Alaskan poet, um, was my advisor. And so really much of what I learned about teaching, I learned before I went into the ed program and it came from watching Peggy teach because she taught a workshop where she'd have her grad students in it, but she would also open it to the entire Fairbanks community. So more, you would have a workshop, you'd think you're going to grad school with these tiny workshops, but we had one course in forms of poetry where there, everyone was there. Mm. People from town, people taking classes part-time at the university. And um, it really, 
I could see that process is what helped everyone make some movement. And, um, and that's, that's kind of where I focus. Yeah. That is beautiful. Uh, I want to come back to this because I have a million questions about process, but one of the things that I'm, as I, you know, put the book down after finishing it, I was trying to think about why this book was impacting me, impacting me so profoundly. And I think that part of it was that I don't think that most great teacher books, like books where that are written by great teachers are this honest. Like usually when something is honest, it's usually from a bad teacher's perspective. And they're talking about teachers who are smoking in the staff lounge, or they're talking about like bad teacher stuff. But we don't get enough of that great teacher stuff that's also honest. It feels like that must have been like a really big leap of faith to do. I, you know, I, I don't think I thought about it in that way because I, but I think you're right. And I think, I think it took a leap of deliberate ignorance. So I'll just like it, like more than a leap of faith, I think I put blinders on and jumped into it. And I'll explain what my blinders were. Um, so let me think about how you describe that. Um, my struggle with a lot of the writing about teaching, and I'll be honest, if anyone's written a teacher memoir and it's great, I'm sure it is. I probably haven't read it because I avoid teacher writing. Because, and you see it on, on online. I'm not in teacher Facebook groups. I do use Twitter professionally with, in, with my writing and teaching, but um, there's, a very, there's a very strong toxic positivity ethos in the profession. That if we just believe it's gonna work hard enough, it's gonna work. And I just don't think that's true. I just don't think life works that way. And so sometimes when I'm reading writing, professional writing by, and I'm just gonna say like edu celebrities, there's so much that is, if I did this and the student responded this way and they're quoting the student as if they earned that language themselves. And I don't believe we actually own anything our students have done at all. And I don't mean that in an individualistic, they're individuals. Ways. We own, not own, we don't own anything. We, I would say we don't own any of it. We've supported a process and we can be proud of that. But the person who came through the process, I think deserves the attention. So I, I tend to resist that kind of writing. So therefore, I did not think of this as a teacher book. I was submitting to what I saw as strictly literary publishers. I wasn't, you know, I could list off the good publishers of edu stuff and I didn't submit it there. I didn't, I did submit one of the poems to uh, English journal, everything else went to poetry, you know, I would, and here's my blinders. These are separate worlds. No, they're not, Nicole. They're, they're clearly interconnected. And what happened in the end was um, it wound up being embraced by many teachers. And um, that's been really interesting for me. And I don't think I wanted to write about teaching. I finally decided that I'm gonna go with a super old and clunky adage, write what you know, and these are prose poems, so it's different. And I, I allowed myself to put those blinders on and write it and then find that I was able to do the thing that I wanted to do while writing about teaching, as long as I didn't think about it. That's unbelievable, right? It's just, it's not what was planned and it's what happened. Once again, it's that process unfolding. 
Well, and, and you know, one thing that goes along with this is I was terrified of getting in trouble at work for this book. Um, and I still, I still am not as much anymore, but I was terrified when I received the first copies, I panicked. I didn't really have many readings in our town here. I tried to make sure I was promoting it more um, in a poetry world way and not in an edgy way. And, um, but it's so interesting because I think even my titling of the book was like a spell for myself. Like you are no longer in trouble. You are not going to get in trouble for this. Like you have to say this. And so that has been really interesting to watch that play out. I'm much more comfortable now. Um, but I do know before I interviewed for my instructional coach job, my boss had not read the book. So when I got hired, I came home and made a joke like, well, no one clearly read my book at the school district. And then, um, and then later on, she texted me a picture of the book and said, oh, I'm reading this. And I was like, but it was fine. It was fine. I think it's just me being afraid of getting in trouble all the time. I'm so glad you said this because I wanted to ask that question, but I also knew I shouldn't ask that question because it might be rude. No, it's not rude. You can ask because like about my boss read it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, just you write so honestly about certain things that happen in staff meetings that we can relate to. We, you write so honestly about the way certain principals or administrators can be very difficult and impossible. And I was like, well, is she still working for these people? <laughs> not directly, not for the, the, you know, but I do think people could possibly recognize themselves from details. No one is named, no schools are named. But teachers who were in the room for a couple things that happened would recognize mm -hmm. those things. Um, yeah, and I think that's a big part of why we don't always get to write about teaching honestly, because we're not allowed to name things that aren't working, you know. And it's such a, like what you just said a second ago was such a metaphor, because I don't want to, I don't know if it's giving away the ending, and I'll edit it out if you want me to, but the title poem, You Are No Longer in Trouble, is about a person who's punished has to write and then turns it in and then the reader reads it Mr. Buff and says you are no longer in trouble that's so metaphorical for some of the things that you what's what things so, you just said what's and that poem I I wrote that all right I'm gonna be really honest because it seems very metaphorical um Julie Marie Ray, Wade wrote this review that made me cry in my car outside a middle school parking lot I got this email that said you're your book's been reviewed in the rumpus and in the poetry world that's you know a big deal I was oh my gosh and so I'm sitting in a middle school parking lot after having worked with teachers and I just started crying because she completely saw me and in her analysis of this poem it's very metaphorical but what I find so funny about this the first level of this poem that is literally the memory as I remember it and I did rhyme and rhetoric and boulevard were words from the spelling list like I remember being an eighth grader and writing this sentence in my eighth grade handwriting because we did use cursive then. And so it's not metaphorical at all. But when you read the poem and after I wrote it and was editing, it's completely an ars poetica, which says why I'm a poet. Like this is how and why I write. I write in opposition to being in trouble. And it completely defines, I think if, it defines my entire reaction to writing. So it was really funny to have this memory so perfectly become a metaphor without 
me needing to change. I mean, he did have a knife in his boot. His name was Mr. Buck. He was a biker. He did, you know, and um, and and he loomed very large. And I did cheat. And and so it's so funny. That, but yes, I feel that way about that poem too. And when I read it, I do feel like I'm saying my absolute truth as an artist right there. And it, you know, it happened. So that was helpful. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs> it's just so great. It's it's one of the many examples of times when. Um, it, it makes me what you're describing makes me think of all the high school teachers I had who made me overanalyze books and pick apart Marxist interpretations of blah 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 when who knows if that's what the writer was intending but it doesn't but at the same time it doesn't matter because as you said everything is process things come together and it's how you fit things together so I wanted to dig into your process a little bit sure you capture these small moments from in so vividly, and there are so many of them. Teachers were always looking for really smart ways to help students access these moments in their lives too. Can you talk a little bit about how you mine some of your writing ideas? Oh, wow. All right, that's a good question. Um, I, all right, you know, sometimes people say, well, writers are people who write every day. Well, then I'm not a writer. I'm a fits and bursts writer. And, um, and I struggle a lot with process. And you're catching me at a moment where I'm feeling I'm at a good place. So I think I can talk about it a little bit. I sometimes describe my writing as like a glacier. It moves very, very slowly most of the time. And then sometimes it even recedes. And I would become afraid that words would begin to disappear off the page. Um, but the, I, I, um, I, what I do to move myself forward and to call my attention to what needs attention, I create sequences. And so I, it's very hard for me to sit down on a blank page day. It's just overwhelming. And that has to be even more overwhelming if you're 14. Mm -hmm. You know, I have like half a life of experience to sit down and put on the blank page. They like maybe played Animal Crossing yesterday, you know? And so not that I didn't too, I also played Animal Crossing yesterday. But um, so, so what I do is I create uh, sequences to trick myself into writing. So what I, the way this book was written was first I started with childhood experiences and I said, what are all the things I remember from childhood experience? So I started, I will never forget the minute that that other girl in my class could spell melancholy and I couldn't and I felt so ashamed. Okay, write that. That's all I know about it. Okay, I remember when Mr. Buff caught me and I wrote that thing. Okay, I remember getting candy from my dad's secretary. So I just let myself move on and I let it be small. And it's why I'm not a, in terms of narrative, the five paragraph essay is like a, like a sledgehammer. It, it helps untrain them from finding the small moments. And um, so, so that's what I did. And then in the section about my dad, it was the same. I said, excuses for the principal. What's one thing my dad never told me? And then in response, what's one thing I never said to my dad? And my entire, I was, I was using that engine of, he didn't say, I didn't say, or he said, I said, and I let the structure carry me through because the blank page is terrifying to me. So that's how it worked. The minutes from class, um, like the parent-teacher conference poem you had me read, it's stuff that happens and it hits you. And what's interesting with that poem too, 
stuff hits you and maybe it doesn't need more than that little bit of space. So I wrote that and then I, I have only girls. And I have noticed as a high school teacher that the parents of only boys have a different experience than the parents of only girls. And I'm not saying there's a, you know, I social, I'm not saying that, but there's a phase that often the way our teenage boys are socialized where they don't talk to their families. And it's not every boy, but I would hear that a lot in conferences. And um, so I just wrote that little poem and that's very much, I'm envisioning one particular conference. My friend who has two boys who edited this book for me, she's a great editor, her name's Sarah, was so moved by that poem. And for me, it was this small one minute of window into this other family's life. And at that point, I didn't have any kids when that happened. So I was viewing it with a different eye. And now my kids are teenagers, so I view it differently again. So my process is creating a structure and then forcing myself to write. Um, so this book had those structures. My first book is um, a book that's in persona based on archival research. So it was research and then write in the voices of the people. My next book that's coming out, there's different structures in it too. There's philosophical argumentation. And then I, I just hit a happy place and I'm now writing a series of uncommon love letters to things that there shouldn't be love letters to. So that's my current, current work. So I have to find the process and I have to force myself to go there. And that's okay. Not all writers are like, you know, John McPhee or Stephen King or someone who sits down and writes every day. I don't want to project, so correct me if I'm hearing it wrong, because I, I think I'm connecting with some of what you're taught with some of your process. It's like you create this infrastructure. Maybe it's um, a structure that you're using like letters to the principal, or maybe it's like the big idea of the story. And then you just start asking yourself questions or you mm -hmm. do search and you respond to it. I love that you use the word infrastructure. Like that, I create a, I create an infrastructure for the poems to land in. And then I don't feel like I have to fill everything in. I just do, I, what I've learned is I, I was trying to make myself write essays a little bit. I was like, it's time to switch to nonfiction because people read that. And, um, but I'm not an essayist. So what happened is this stumble into prose poems was really a good move for me. Um, Someday, maybe I'll write a whole essay. Let's see. But, uh, you know, I'm a sprinter. So. <laughs> How do you do you think that what you, you've described could be translated into um, something we could teach in a writing class? Yeah, actually, I just taught an online class called Sequences and Patterns. And um, it was super fun. What I did is I sought out a whole bunch of poets who have sequences and um, or use a sequence. And then I reached out to one of them and she actually, I reached out to a couple you know, famous poets who um, then told me, yes, this is exactly my process or no, this was accidental, but I realized later it could be useful for. So my goal in the class, it was a small online class was to teach people to find their sequence. Like if you can find the sequence, you can keep going because you, you're, not, you're not on empty. You're, well, I could write another love letter. What could I write one to? Or I could write this. What could I write one to? I want to unpack one more thing in this topic and then we'll move on. I promise. You also talked about how you are living your life. And then when you are, you probably, I imagine you have what Jack Gantos calls that writing radar, where because you write, you're more receptive to things that will happen. So when those things happen that awaken 
a memory like you mentioned earlier do you carry a notebook do you do notes in your phone 99% of the time I fail and what I can still remember is what where I was when I had the good idea so I'll be driving on the bridge of Cushman Street and there's these little flags in the key bank and I'm like only 300 yards from the parking lot at work I won't forget this I won't forget it I park the car all I can remember is where I was driving so to that end, especially now that I'm in, I've lost a lot of ideas, but you're right. There is that moment of radar. Um, so I am using my phone. I was driving the other day and recorded some stuff in my phone. I'm trying to use voice memos, but that's super recent. And that is a really hard thing because when you find that little flash, it's so easy to lose. And the, when you think it at first, you always think you're not gonna lose it. So for me, voice memos are best. Often I get ideas while I'm driving. It's horribly inconvenient. When I was in my early 20s, one of my favorite bands, Neutral Milk Hotel, the, the lead singer said that he doesn't write down the lyrics when they come to him because uh, if it's good enough, it, he'll remember it when he sits down to write. And that's one of those hubris of the young kind of statements, I'm sure. And I remember like taking that to heart and it just worked out so horribly. There are so many ideas that I lost. And as I get older, I'm probably losing more and more. <laughs> And I think just life is so complicated that it it could be age and it could be anything. Like, you know, I've got two teenagers who are doing remote learning or blended learning or one's back in school and one won't go back to school. And I'm trying to juggle all these other things and I need to get the dog's nails cut or I need to do this or I need to do that. So there's a million other things vying for my attention. And uh, yeah, some people can remember those things, but I can't. So, but once I get the sequence, my memory gets stronger. So now that I'm in a sequence a little bit or feel like I found something, my memory gets stronger. I, I feel that like once I'm in it, the ideas come and stick more, but when I'm flailing around, it's really hard. And when I'm, what I love that I'm hearing and I hope that other teachers are hearing is as a writer, how much permission to not do it perfectly and how much grace you give yourself you're, I hope that teachers are hearing that because I don't know if I always have done that with students. I don't know if I've always treated writing that way. I had the, the big blessing for years of teaching creative writing at the high school. And um, it happened accidentally because I was trying so hard, so, so hard early in my career to keep my writing life separate from my poetry life because I had the sense that in the poetry world, a high school teacher wouldn't be taken seriously. And I had some issues with imposter syndrome or feeling like I'm just a high school teacher. And I struggle with that a lot. Um, You're talking about like how it's hard. You're between yeah. worlds, right? Yeah, so, so here's how I started teaching creative ring, trying to keep them separately. I was teaching ninth grade English and you know, I had an MFA in poetry that I never talked. I didn't talk about at work. I didn't tell people I have publications. I didn't really talk about my first book. I, I don't at work. I still maintain this boundary. But my, but my department head came to me and she said, hey, we need someone to teach creative writing next year. And I thought, oh no, they're gonna make me do it because of my MFA. Now, looking back, this seems like such a ridiculous, foolish attitude. And it was, but I had built this wall and then I taught creative writing and it was the best thing ever. Because of course, it's the thing I love. Of course, it's the process 
that I'm used to and I'm fully invested in. And then over the years, that program grew. So I was actually, at some years, almost only teaching creative writing because we had so many sections and I would teach one or two other classes and I loved it. And so a lot of my approach to student writing comes out of that process, even though I was also teaching AP English and Honors American Lit, and I was having them write essays, my, my approach was grounded in this workshop model where it's totally okay to write something that doesn't fit the structure at, you know, at first, and let's look at it. What can you get away with is my biggest question for my writers. Because if you can get away with something, then it's a good piece of writing, you know. So, so how do you work things in that you really care about? And um, what so can you yeah, get away with? Yeah, and it, you know, it's those two words that you were playing with in Mr. Buff's detention. <laughs> what can you get away with? That's yeah. it, right? Yeah, and you know, I yeah. But it, it's so it is it's straight out of, and that is my ars poetica that's why and how I write that poem so beautiful so what can you tell us about your new project that's going to be coming out soon yeah um my next book comes out in August it's called everything never comes your way and it is a really different book than this book I tend to I I guess I have a tendency I can say it I've written three books I have a tendency to write a very different kind of book so my first book was historical persona and research based my second book was about my is a memoir poetry about my experience as an educator and this one it, it of course all my books push against something or try to and this one is uh has a big section pushing against the idea of nature writing in Alaska. Here in Alaska, we, as writers, and especially those of us who are not indigenous to this place and who came here as settlers, uh, have a very interesting relationship with this place. So, um, and there are some very famous poets, one in particular in my region of Alaska, who define what nature writing in Alaska is. So I push back against that a little bit in one section. I get my philosophical, I have another section um, called For the Sake of Argument, where it's just about arguments and philosophical arguments. And then there's a little bit of memoir and nature in the beginning. So yeah, it's a different, another issue that I'm pushing back on. Nicole, so. I gotta tell you, as a fellow oppositionally defiant teacher, I've never felt more seen. <laughs> it's so funny and I, I'm tired of it. I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, can I just write, you know, something I love. I love, um, I love poets that celebrate the beauty in the world. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make myself do that. But it doesn't work that way. So I have to argue a little bit. That's hilarious. So, all right, let's, let's end on this question. What's one thing that you wish more teachers would think about? Or if we want to think about it in a more positive light, which I don't think we do because we're oppositionally <laughs> defiant. Um, what is one thing that teachers, when you see teachers do it, it makes you smile? Oh, wow. And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing, just a thing. No, I'm thinking right. And I've been in so many classrooms um, lately, you know, in the last two years working as an instructional coach. Um, I guess when I see teachers uh, ungrasp a little bit and, um, you know, you always hear that or you, you hear it out there, you know, don't smile in the first semester or, but when teachers um, relax into the interactions they have with students and ungrasp, and I don't mean control like teachers are controlling everything, 
But when they leave space for their students to bring something to the table, the whole class kind of blooms. And, uh, you know, when I visit a class that does that, it's, you know, it's, it's like the windows are open, the air is there, and you feel the breeze. Yeah, I don't know if you could tell, but I was having a lot of fun in that interview. And instead of saying something that I think might be wise, I'm just going to tell you, check the show notes to follow everybody and see more about OWP. And Nicole Stellan O'Donnell is going to give us one more poem to take us out. Thanks for tuning in. At 16, they discover sadness, but like seedlings, they can't help but turn toward light. Unlike me, who years ago turned away so hard I turned on myself instead. These days, my sadness, simplified with age, just wants out of these tights and skirt, wants a nap, wants something more than sore feet, tired eyes, ink-stained fingers. Years ago, in 11th grade English, I propped a book on my desk and rage read while eavesdropping in the background. So when Mrs. Warning called on me to call out my inattention, I could answer defiantly. Years ago, I was the girl hunched in a coat, covering a body I hated more than geometry. This afternoon, that same girl is here, skipping lunch, reading in the corner of my classroom as she peels her chipped nail polish and waits for another bell to ring. I want to give that girl my eyes, let her see herself outside her skin. If only she could borrow them long enough to see the ring of light still clinging to her from the world before. <laughs>